Good morning, my name's Peter. Uh, please join with me as we read from God's Word, Ephesians chapter 4, the first 16 verses. Ephesians chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says in Scripture, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed backwards and forwards by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. May God bless this reading from his word. Thanks. We've been in a series on uh, working through Ephesians. And we've been talking a lot about this word grace and what grace means, what God, how God changes us, but it also changes our identity. And now we're starting to think about how we're shaped by that grace. So even if you haven't been here uh, for the series so far, uh, yeah, we're just thinking about uh, who we are in Christ, not just changes our name that we might call ourselves a Christian, but it changes who we are and how we live, how we're shaped by that grace. So I'm going to pray now uh, before we consider what that means for us as a church family. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for the opportunity now to sit before you, that you speak to us through your word that we just had read, that your Holy Spirit speaks to us through uh, our ears, our eyes, our hearts, Lord. That this morning that, that you will meet with us, you will speak to us, you'll show us your love and show us how to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most anxious things that I think anybody's ever done, at least I've ever done, is walking into a new church. What do you expect? Whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, grown up in church, not a grown up in church, but walking into a church the first time and you don't know anybody, your heart's racing, the adrenaline's pumping, what are you going to expect? Because we've actually been trained 
and taught to think critically, to, to be suspicious about everything. Because the word on the street is, you know, churches, oh, that's where they brainwash people. Or churches, that's where uh, all the, the domestic violence happens, where the husbands beat up their wives. Or child abuse happens, that the kids get abused in that relationship. Oh, go to church, hang on to your wallet, because all they want is your money. So we're designed, to, we're geared to think suspiciously, what am I going to expect when I walk into a church? And I've got to say, churches haven't helped the cause either, because they've done all those things in the past. But that's not the church I want to belong to. It's not the church I want to go to and be a part of. So what is the church we should be a part of? What, is church, what should we expect when we walk into a church? Or what should we expect even here at Southside, the church God wants us to be, let alone who we want it to be, what we want it to be? What does the church God want us to be? That's a challenge. Because Paul's been writing to this, this letter to the Ephesians to a church. So people who call themselves Christians, it's not just an open letter that he puts in the newspaper to everybody, it's to a church, people who follow Jesus. And he paints this picture of this is the people, this is the sort of church that God is, is calling you to be. He starts off in verse 2, we'll come back to verse 1, but verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient and bearing with one another in love. I mean, picture this, if you're walking into a church, this is what you're going to find. Verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lots of all language. But you get the idea. You come into church and you don't just find one nice person who's humble and gentle or one nice person who shows love. He says, be completely humble and gentle, patient, loving. The whole church looks like that. It's a little bit what I think like, walking into heaven might look like you go into the gates of heaven what are you going to find you're going to find god there but you're also going to find his people there as well but they're also nice they're also caring also loving but what makes this appealing is not just there a whole lot of nice people you could go to a lot of places to find nice people but the reason that makes them special like this is because they're all centered around god yeah, here he drops a few names, but he's looking at it the last few chapters. Uh, there's the Holy Spirit that unifies us. There's Jesus Christ that saves us. There's the Father who loves and reaches out to us. And this is what he means by all this all language. We've all been baptised into this. We all have this one Spirit, one Lord thing. We're all a part of it. That's what makes it special, is we're all gathered around him. And that flows out in this love, humility, and gentleness. It's all around God. Again, it's a bit like the way I'd picture heaven to be. God's people meeting around him for all of eternity, uh, just being washed clean, made perfect. It's a great picture, a great image. But how do we find a church like this? This is a pretty big ask. It's a big picture. Paul's saying, be this kind of church. How do we not only find one, but a better question, how can we be one of those churches, the church that God calls us to be? How do we reduce anxiety when people walk in and gets rid of all those stereotypes and going, come in these doors and you're going to be amazed. You're going to be blown away what God is doing here. See, Paul's going to unpack that in this chapter as he fleshes out what this really means. He's going to be referring to grace all the time. It's all because of grace that this can happen, what God has done for us. 
So he starts off by saying, we're rescued by grace. He's saying, before we start talking about church, you need to remember who you are as an individual. Because church is made up by a whole bunch of individuals. But what's your identity? What has God done for you? So that when you come together, that we can come together as like-minded people. He starts off uh, with the first verse. As prisoners for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We're going to spend a bit of time in this first verse, uh, but it's going to help us unpack the whole rest of the, the, the passage. But we need to pull apart. There's two big things going on here. Remember, he's talking to Christians, people who do follow Jesus and are part of this, this church that he's writing to. But he uses this term uh, that I'm a prisoner for the Lord, which is kind of a funny term because that sounds a bit negative. But if we put it in the context of what's going on in Paul's life, uh, last chapter he referred to him being a prisoner in Rome, like for a prisoner uh, held by the Romans. And when we think of prisoner held by the Romans, that's a bad thing. All your freedom is stripped away, you're a nobody, you're controlled. He goes, no, no, Paul doesn't complain about being in chains uh, at the hands of the Romans. They don't own me. They don't control me. He says, rejoice that I'm in chains for the sake of the gospel. He's not worried about being a prisoner, but he says, but I am a prisoner for the Lord. But he says, that's not a bad thing, that's a positive thing. I submit to Jesus. I submit to control. I belong to Jesus. I don't belong to Rome. They can have me in chains, but I do belong to Jesus. That's how he can say, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He's saying it in a positive way, even though it sounds negative to us. He fills this out a few verses further down from verse 7. He gives us this illustration. Uh, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You go, what's this grace that he's talking about? And he quotes verse, uh, Psalm 68. So is this why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives... And gave gifts to his people. Now you've got to consider what, what is going on here. It's very battle language, fighting language, king having victory type language. Uh, so why is he quoting this Psalm 68? Uh, he's talking about when kings go into battle, they go into win, don't they? Two kings come together, they take their armies, they try to have victory. The winner takes the spoils. You know, takes the, the town or the wealth, but he also takes the people back to his town. So in Psalm 68, it's King David talking about God, the good king, God taking a people for himself, defeating the bad kings, and bring up to Mount Zion, up to Jerusalem. So that's a good thing, that God would take captives uh, into Jerusalem to be his people. So when we see captives, David's saying that's a good thing. And for here, what Paul's saying, actually, um, when he's talking about a king coming down, ascending, taking us, it's, we're not talking about a battle scene here, a battle with armies, literal armies, but we're talking about Jesus and what Jesus is doing. He goes on to explain that from verse 9. What does he ascended mean? What does it mean that he goes up mean, except that he also descended to the lowly levels, the earthly regions? So he's talking about, it's talking, the psalm's talking about Jesus. Jesus had to come down from his throne in heaven onto this earth. Some people kind of think he's gone down into, into hell uh, to death. But no, no, he's just talking about, no, he's come down to earth to fight the battle, to claim the battle. And he who descended is the very one who ascends, goes back on high, 
uh, higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So it's just talking about Jesus, Jesus having victory. Jesus is the king that's come down to fight the battle. He's taken on Satan, Satan who controls and reigns over the universe. But Jesus has come to, to win that battle by going to the cross, by having the victory of taking our sin to save us from the grip of Satan, to save us from sin and death, to give us life. And now that he gives us life... He's taken us back into heaven. And this is the language Paul's used earlier on, the stuff that we've already got in Christ. He's taken us as his captive. So when he says, I'm prisoner for the Lord, we go, oh, I don't want to be a prisoner. I don't want to be a captive, except if it's a good king. You see, you've got to play out these scenarios. We often think we're in a comfortable life. We've got the good things. If a king was to come and, and take control of Australia and take us away, that would be a bad thing. He says, what if the alternative was a situation that we're submitting to a bad king in Satan? What if, what if things are bad, that we're caught in our oppression, we're caught in our sin, we're at his mercy? What if we're in charge, we've got a bad king reigning over us and a good king come along and had victory and take, took us captive and we're prisoners of him, the good king? I mean, we'd rejoice because there we have true life. There we've been freed from our sin. There we've been freed. We've truly been liberated into freedom under the good king. So when we see this slaves, um, a prisoner of Jesus, or we're captives of him, he's saying, if it's a good king, this is really good. And Paul's saying, this is a good thing because he is a good king. You don't want the alternative because Satan will bind you up. He'll tie you up in your sin and addictions and he'll, he'll kill you. It leads to death, is what he's saying. This is all wrapped up in the meaning of why we call Jesus Lord. Lord uh, is sometimes a word we use a lot. We've sung it in some of our songs. It's sort of, we think of it like a title, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. But when we call Jesus Lord, it's not just a title, it's a description of who he is. So Jesus is the one I'm safe with. Jesus is the one I belong to. I belong to him. Jesus is the one I can fully trust. He is the king. Does that mean I'm a prisoner of the Lord? Well, kind of the language Paul uses, yeah, because he's a good king. I can trust him. Does that mean I'm captivated by Jesus? I'm captive by him? Yes, because he's not going to let me go because he's a good king that's going to protect me. He's the one I trust. So when we call Jesus Lord, we are saying we're submitting to him. We're surrendering to him. Because he's the one I can trust because he's the good king. So this whole idea of being a prisoner for the Lord then is a good thing if he's a good king. And Paul's been saying all along, he is the good king. But then he goes on to talk about a second part of this, this verse. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Uh, which is another challenging thing we need to get our head around. Because Paul's been going on about, the first, in the first three chapters, this message of grace. If you've been here and you haven't got that message yet, or if you're here for the first time, we need to understand this message of grace, what God has already poured out to you. That God has already chosen you. He's already called you his son. He's already sent Jesus to redeem you, so to come as a rescuer, to bring you back. He's already done that. That's free. You didn't deserve it. it it's a gift from him. But he also goes on to say, because we've already been saved because of what Jesus has done, that when we trust in Jesus, we've been blessed with every heavenly blessing. He says, we've been seated with Christ in heaven. 
Not we will be seated. We have been seated with Christ in heaven. We have been allowed to come before the Father God. Even as sinners here on earth, through Jesus, we can come before the Heavenly Father, before him. He says, you have this status, you have it now. This grace is so enormous. Uh, Just a few verses earlier at the end of chapter 3, he goes, I'm just praying for you guys to have wisdom, that you would realise how wide and how long and how deep and how huge God's love is. Because this love just goes on and on. It's enormous that God would give us all this stuff with no ifs or buts. It's not if you're religious enough, if you're moral enough, if you get rid of your sin. It's not like that. Because of Jesus, we have it all. And we have it all already. Now what he's saying is, now, are you going to keep on sinning? Are you going to keep following Satan? Or if God's done it all, if he's called you his children, you're going to start living like his children. When you understand his grace, when you understand what he's done, he's saying, now, live a life worthy of the calling. Not live a life so you deserve the calling. You've already got the calling. Live a life worthy of it. I heard this uh, amazing story some time ago uh, that helps explain this. Uh, some of you might know Douglas MacArthur, who was a big war hero for the Americans in World War II. Uh, but in World War I, there's a story about something he did. So in World War I, again, he was still uh, a war hero there, and he was leading uh, a large group of men into battle uh, against the Germans. And he'd been around in battle before. He'd had a bravery medal awarded to him. And he was at the base of this mountain, or this hill, where the Germans controlled, and he got news from the command that, look, we've got to take this hill. We've got to take it. It's a big strategic thing. Uh, We've got to do it. Now, apparently there'd been attempts before. The Germans had set up a line. Uh, The Americans were on the other side of the line, and there was this no-man's land in the middle. You know, if you step into no-man's land, you're just going to get shot. You're going to get killed. They said, no, we've got to break this line, cross no man's land. We've got to defeat the Germans to take control of the hill. So he says to his next in command, a younger soldier, he says, look, this is the command. We've got to take this hill. It's really important for us to do that. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I want you to lead your men up the left-hand side, lead the charge, and the men will follow you up there. I'm going to lead my men up the middle, and we can take this on. He said, I just want you to know how serious this is because not, this hasn't been, the line hasn't been broken before. So you need to know uh, many men might not come through this. It's going to be at some cost. But we need to take it. So I'm asking you uh, to be brave. In fact, he says, I'm going to tell you right now, once all this is over, I'm going to nominate you for a bravery medal. So after this is done, I'm going to give you, make sure you get a bravery medal. And he walks away, back to his own men. Before he reaches his own men, he turns around and marches back to his younger soldier, his next in command, and said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm so confident you're going to lead those men uh, through the line into battle, that your bravery is going to shine. I'm going to give you my bravery medal and pin it on your shoulder, uh, on your chest. I'm going to give it to you now, and I'm going to see you at the top. And he walked back to lead his men. I thought, how amazing. You know, if you're a soldier and you go, yeah, if I do this, I'm going to get the medal. But no, the senior in command says, no, I'm so confident you're going to be at the top at the end. I'm going to give you the medal now. I'm going to give you my medal now. You can have the honour, even though he hasn't gone into battle yet. That's what Jesus does. This grace that pours out and pours out. Jesus says, you'll be seated beside me in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, 
I know you're going to fail, I know you're going to struggle with this, but because of Jesus and what he's done, that's the reason I have confidence you're going to be there. In fact, here's your label now. In fact, it talks about here's the Holy Spirit now. Because the Holy Spirit is a sign of our inheritance in heaven. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to deserve it. Be so confident in Christ, trust in Christ, and it's yours now. The seat's up there. It's got your name on it now. You can come before the Father God now. Do you deserve it? No, because of what Jesus has done. I'm giving you that honour now. Already, we have it. So it asks the question, then how are you going to live? If you were that soldier just being given a bravery medal, are you going to turn around and go, this is pretty scary, guys. I might get hurt. Uh, so I'm thinking I might stay at the back and just let you guys do your thing. So no. Live a life worthy of the calling. He's been given a bravery medal. Now let's live like someone who's brave. But for us, you've been given great honour in Christ. You've made his children. You've given the seed in heaven. You've given a new identity. Prisoner of the Lord. We're captive by him. He's our Lord. And we're going to follow his Lord. Follow this Lord. Uh, so now live the life that, you, that you've been called to live. So not you don't earn it. It's in response to it about who he wants you to be. This is the challenge. Because what does this look like? This whole, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He is Lord. I'm going to submit to him. I'm thankful that he's a good God, a good king. And I sit under him. But I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What does that look like? What does God expect of you to be living a life worthy of your calling? Paul goes on and he talks about it in a church context. He's writing to churches. He's writing to believers. He's going, this is what it looks like. Uh, he talks about, this is why it says, this back to verse 68, because we're going to flesh that out a little bit more. When he ascended on high, he took many captives. We're prisoners of the Lord. A good thing. But he gave gifts to his people. Again, thinking this battle scene, when a king comes and has victory over another nation, other neighbouring nations, they sit up and pay attention. Man, we don't want to get on the wrong side of that guy because he's starting to bump us all off so we bring gifts of tribute to the king and verse six, uh, psalm 68 actually talks about it actually says and um other people gave gifts to the king because that's what happens in that culture but paul sort of reinterpreted this this psalm because because we've got a good king this good king doesn't expect gifts to him he says he's going to give gifts to his people that's a turnaround what does that look like he goes on in verse 11 to explain so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There's two things going on here. One is given this gift to the church. And he talks, there's different names for uh, these preachers, teachers, evangelists, but it's kind of broken up in those who uh, make, make disciples of Jesus and those who grow disciples of Jesus. Not exclusively, a, you see what's going on. If things are healthy, people are becoming Christians and they're growing as Christians, uh, is what they, the, the names he, he's put up there. Now, I know when we're talking about jobs, because I've had different jobs in my career, and I know we come from all different kind of jobs, the grass is always greener on the other side. And I know, for me, uh, you know, who only works one day a week, stands up here on Sundays and just does my thing, and I holiday for the rest of the time, it would be a bit rich for me to go, see what it's saying? 
Paul's saying, I'm God's gift to you. I'm God's gift to the church. You know, you should be thankful. You should be praising God that I'm here. I'm the teacher. I'm the pastor for the church. It's kind of a bit rich. And if somebody come up here and smacked me on the backside, I wouldn't blame at all. In fact, I'd deserve it if I said that and meant it. But just to fill that out a little bit on what is going on, why are these people gifts to the church? Why are they put in charge and put in charge to not only make disciples, grow disciples? I think he's highlighting there's something going on here that uh, we just need to fill out a little bit why they're, they're needed in the church and why they're important. Uh, see, a bit of an insight in what goes on in the pastor or teacher's life is that when uh, somebody takes on this role, they're taking on all the responsibility, the weight, in a sense, of the direction of the church, not just direction vision, but the direction of bringing people, making disciples and growing disciples. So they've got responsibility for teaching the Bible well being faithful to scripture, being faithful to proclaim it in a way that people might understand. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's more making sure my own life is in order. Now, if the preacher's life is not in order, why would you even listen to him? So he's got to have his life in order. He's got to let God preach to him before he can preach to anybody else. So he's got responsibility of his own life. He's also got his family. He's got to make sure his family's in order and going well because uh, that's his first responsibility. If there's anything going on with his family, that's, that's more responsibility. He's got more load that he's got to make sure his family's headed in the right direction. But not only his family, it's the church family as well. All of a sudden there's uh, hundreds or other people involved in this too, that if anything's going wrong in the church, uh, whether it's good or bad, ups and downs, uh, it's laid on his shoulder as well. He's taking responsibility because he loves the people and he wants to see harmony, he wants to see people made, making disciples and growing disciples. So he's got that burden as well. And uh, if he is doing his job, he's concerned about kingdom work as well, stuff going on outside this church, and this is how our, our denomination works, is we do try and help out and encourage other churches around us. Uh, if there's things going on there, uh, he tries to help out, he's taking on that burden as well that he wants to see good, healthy churches in the whole area, in the whole country, even the whole world. Now, if something is not working out, whether it's his own life, his family, the church family, the wider church, he does take it personally. I don't know whether you thought about it. It's not the kind of job you knock off at five o'clock and go home and go, gee, that was a hard day's work. It's a very personal job. So when you've got all this weight on your shoulders, you do take it personally. And this is a way Satan gets into the church. So uh, if good things are happening, if the gospel's being preached, Satan is going to try and stop the gospel at work. And one of the easiest ways, I think, for the gospels to stop being preached is Satan to just put just a dump on the teacher-pastor, guys. Because he's a sinner, he's weak, and he will crumble. And he'll collapse, and the gospel work uh, will be damaged, or at least inhibited, if that happens. And Satan's doing a good job at that. He's doing a good job. Let me give you a few statistics. This is a recent survey come out of the UK uh, done with a whole stack of pastors in a church just to give you some insight into uh, the uniqueness of this role. 33% uh, of people going to ministry suffer burnout in the first five years, some form of burnout in the first five years. 50%, one in two, feel incapable to meet the needs of their job. 80% believe pastoral ministry has a negative effect on their own family. 90% work more than 50 hours a week, every week. 
Now, this is a survey in England, but uh, what's been happening in our own denomination reflects these sort of statistics. We have a number of people suffering burnout and are on stress leave in those positions. Now, I'm not saying... This is not a, a pity session for the pastor. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. But it's not meant to be a pity session for the pastor. <laughs> but it is saying it's not the job description. Like, if those stats were listed on a job description, who would sign up? Within five years, you'll... There's a good chance you'll be burnt out, uh, more than 80% chance. Your family's going to be negatively affected and you're going to be working more than 50 hours a week every week. I mean, with no overtime. It's like, who would do that? Who would do that? It's quite a unique position. But I do say it because it's a job not for the faint-hearted and I appeal to you to be praying for your pastors and teachers. Uh, anybody involved here, including Bindi, who looks after our kids' ministry, they all take this job seriously and personally and they want to see people brought into the kingdom. They want to see disciples made. They want to see disciples grow. And it's a big load. It's a big burden for them. And in that sense, they are a gift from Jesus. People aren't lining up to become pastors. They are a gift from Jesus uh, because it's not the best career option. But in that sense, we need them. And Jesus equips the right people for that job. And we are blessed by them. So he's kind of saying, here's your gift from Jesus. Uh, he's the victor. He's the king. He's a good king. And I'm going to build this church, he says. And here's key people that are going to bring you in that journey to grow and make disciples, to be like Jesus, to go uh, to reflect on grace and be shaped by grace. But there's a second thing going on here uh, is why these people are a gift from God. Because he goes on to talk about their job is to equip people for works of service. So we may all be built up, reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge, the Son of God. It's kind of using the same language that we saw in verses 2 and 3 up the top. You know, we walk into a church and you see lots of people humble and gentle and loving, people surrounded, uh, gathering around God, pointing other people to God with the one baptism, one God, one Lord, one Saviour. It kind of picks up that feel. We've got people who are leading us this way, but we're all a part of it now. We all have this unity around Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, that's what we've all got in common. We've been baptised into that faith. And we're all to grow in that faith as well. And we're all to become a part of it. That we're all bearing with each other in love. We're all building each other up. We're concerned with each other. It's not the pastor's job to do all that for everybody, but the whole church is doing it for each other. We're a church full of ministers, is what he's saying. That we all do it all. Uh, for each other that no one's going to be left behind now when you see this picture if I walk into a church I'm not just going for the experience for me to go home with a warm and fuzzy but I'm actually being included in something that's really dynamic that's going on within a church family that's very different church experience in fact it's kind of messy but kind of attractive that if I actually want to grow as a Christian I need to be a part of this it doesn't make sense when you read verses like this to see people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I call myself a Christian, but I don't really like church, I think church is optional, so I don't go to a church or I don't commit to a church. Paul's saying, you got the wrong idea. When you see how good church can be, that if you want to actually grow as a believer, you need to be involved in this. 
You need to be a part of it to, for you to grow and to help others to grow. You'd walk over broken glass, as somebody said. You'd walk over broken glass to get into church. I mean, I could run that idea past James, putting broken glass across the front door of the church to go, the people who really want to be here will walk over broken glass to be here. Might defeat the purpose a little bit about trying to be a friendly church. But you get the point. Would you walk over broken glass to be here or is cosy bed on a cold morning sort of enough to turn, persuade you? He says, you want to be a part of this. But he also says, not only uh, by grace Jesus equips us through the people, through each other, but by grace he builds us up, uh, we build each other up in love. He goes on to say uh, in verse 15, uh, the, just painting this picture a bit again. Instead, we speak the truth in love, we'll grow to become, in, uh, sorry, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. We're all going to be like Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. It's like, we're all needed. It's not like I can sit on the sideline, but we need you from stop sitting on the sideline to help us function as a church. Because we all need to be growing to maturity. We all need to be uh, knowing who we are in Christ and growing together as a body of Christ, becoming more like Christ. This maturity word is an interesting word because I think it, it's actually really helpful not just to show what, what does a maturity look like as a Christian, but we've all gone through a stage of maturity in our own lives from childhood, adolescence to adulthood. We're either there or working it out or still working it out no matter how old we are. But it's kind of that idea of, you know, when you're an, a, a teen, usually, I remember I'm trying to work out my identity. How do I fit within my social groups? What sort of person do I want to be? How do I become that sort of person? And as a teen, you've got to work out how do I do that? Where do I fit? What, what should I be like? Now, there's a couple of different ways you can do that. One is to lock yourself in a room. So some teenagers lock themselves in a the room, they've got their video, they've got the internet, they don't need anything else. They lock themselves up in a room, they come out when they're 30 and realise the world has changed, everybody's moved on and they're still a, an, a teenager, an adolescent. They haven't grown to maturity. Now, Christians can be a lot like that. I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to stay at home, I'm going to stay in my room, I can grow because I'm a Christian, I'm okay, but they come out years later, or when things happen in their life that test their life and test their faith, and all of a sudden realise they haven't matured, they haven't worked out what it means, they haven't worked out their identity. And to do that, we need each other to do that. We need to focus on Jesus, we need to encourage each other to do that, to build each other up and do that. Now there's a number of ways we... We actively encourage us all to do that here when we do our onboard course for newcomers. We talk about the importance of growth groups. So to be a part of a growth group, it's great everybody being here on a Sunday, but to be a part of a growth group, you're in a smaller circle with better relationships or more meaningful relationships with than just the, the morning tea after church. Uh, and you actually do life together. You share, you pray with each other, you talk about the word, you encourage each other, one, uh, other, you encourage each other and point them to Jesus. Growth groups are a significant part of what we do in growing. But also serving, serving together on a team. Uh, Andy Stanley is an American pastor who wrote this book and it's sort of talking about Christian maturity and he breaks up five steps in maturity and one of them 
is serving in ministry. And I thought, oh, I haven't really thought about that as an act of growing in maturity. Uh, but he says, no, no, think about it. You're serving with each other, shoulder to shoulder, with others, different ages, different stages of life, maybe even different maturity, but you're serving with each other. And with the highs and lows of serving in a ministry team, whether it's kids' ministry or welcoming, whether it's morning tea, there's highs and lows of conversations, things that work, don't work. It actually points us back to Jesus. If we're having a bad day, the person beside us going, isn't it good that Jesus is still king, he's still Lord, uh, and things will be okay? But you also share the highs together. Wasn't that awesome? I had this conversation with this person and it really has impacted me. Hear, the, hear what they're saying. This is really good. So we're growing together. We're building. So consider that. Growth groups, serving as a team. But we're doing this together. We're ministering to each other, with each other as we do that. And it will challenge your faith. It will grow your faith. But at the same time, it's not just about you. It's about others. It's how this grace how grace shapes us into who we are not just as individuals but as a church let me share with you a couple of uh, a number of things that happened over the last couple of weeks in the life of our church won't name names uh, but the highs and lows of what goes on in our church family so a couple of Sundays ago we had one of our youth girls share her testimony it was awesome to have uh, a young person share their journey and how they come to Christ I've had a couple get engaged. I won't name names. Uh, a couple get engaged. It's something we celebrate as a church family. When couples come together and they say, we're going to uh, come together in married, marriage, but we're doing it before Jesus. Uh, we had another person was involved uh, with sharing the gospel, and the person they shared the gospel with become a Christian. So they come into the office and say, this is awesome. You won't believe they're meeting up with this person today, they become a Christian. We're so excited, energised the whole office. This is awesome that that would happen. So it has this rub-off effect. But also, lots of ups and downs happen in the church context. You know, we've had uh, people losing pregnancies. We've had uh, people try to take their own life, and they've ended up in hospital. So that's not always rosy and encouraging, but it's doing life together. If we don't have each other in this, pointing us back to Jesus is still Lord, he's still in control, we're going to struggle when those things come. But when we can encourage each other in the grace that's been poured out on us, that we can build others up, we can point each other to Christ. We can build each other up. And this is the church that Paul is saying, you need to be. It's not a pipe dream. He's saying, this is a church you should expect to be as we're all going on in this journey this journey in growing in maturity, growing to be more like Christ. See, more people you know and get connected with, you can share that journey as well. If you're on the sideline, it's hard to do that. Let me encourage you, get involved, grow, so we can support you and you can support others. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just thank you for your amazing love to us. And when we hear those words that uh, we're a prisoner of the Lord, that we're one of your captives, Lord, on the one sense, they're, they're negative words that we don't want to hear. But Lord, they, they just point us back to your grace, that you're a good king. And Lord, of anywhere in this world, I want to be your prisoner. I want to be under your control. I want to be under your leadership. Lord, thank you for the rescuing us, that when you came to go to the cross, to deal with my sin, my mess, to take my death, that you give me life and a new identity. Lord, thank you for this church, that we can call ourselves a family. Thank you for being our king, that we can gather around you and grow in your likeness. And thank you for the work you're doing in here.
no matter what age or stage we are at in life. But Lord, help us continue on that path. Help us to be more like you, not just looking for ourselves so that we might grow in maturity, but how we can build up others. Lord, thank you for that journey. It's not always an easy journey, but thanks for making us a part of it. We pray it for your glory. Amen.